welcome to the third uh, episode of the Gospel Story Podcast. Uh, we're joined here today by Dr. Jack Clem uh, here with you again. We're going to look at the third act of the drama of Scripture. Um, the King Chooses Israel. And so, Dr. Clem, really happy to uh, listen to you, help us think through the whole Old Testament. What's <laughs> the Old Testament about? Yeah. Well, this is a big chunk to work our way through. Uh, we've been sort of uh, set up for a nice sort of manageable um, uh, units to work our way through and think our way through. But this one's a, a little bigger and it's a little bit more intimidating. I gave that to you on purpose. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> so, but uh, but anyway, we want to try to manage this as best we can. Mm. And there's a lot of different ways that we could do that. But let's try to do it by thinking our way through the covenants and the covenant concepts and uh, maybe seeing the covenants as the markers in the story mm. that move it forward as well as you know, keep us looking back to see how, you know, what God is now doing relates to what God did and what God is now doing relates to what yet God will do. There's kind of an already not yet at play here. And so uh, let's try to unpack that in the um, in our podcast this act, uh, that we have for you today. All right. So uh, first of all, what I would like to do is just lay out a couple of key ideas about covenant and you know, first of all, when I think about covenant, I think of covenant, and it could be understood as a system of theology, or it could be understood as a theological center that organizes the Old Testament. And uh, maybe somewhat related is the idea of a grid through which we could read the biblical material. I hope that you'll at least see, after listening and studying along with us, that the grid concept can really help us manage and understand and see the drama of Scripture unfold. Um, and of course, you know, we're coming at this from uh, more of a dispensational perspective, but uh, that doesn't in any way diminish or distract from you know, how our authors are presenting it. But uh, uh, when we think about the covenants, we think of perhaps the five major ones. We're thinking about the Noah covenant, we talked a little bit about that in the last podcast that you walked us through, Genesis 6 through 9. Uh, you brought us right up to the brink of the next covenant, which was Abraham. And we think of that as detailed and unfolded in primarily three chapters, or Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And then we, we think next about the Mosaic covenant. That takes in really a, a major portion of the Old Testament scripture, it's primarily articulated in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19 and 20, and then Deuteronomy 5. But really, the book of Deuteronomy, in a lot of ways, the book of Leviticus, uh, unpacks a lot of the, the civil and the ceremonial uh, aspects of the law, as well as the maybe what we would call the moral aspects of the law in um, Exodus 19 and 20, and then Deuteronomy 5. Although we designate the law in those three categories, moral, civil, and ceremonial, we do realize it's so intertwined, you know, and it's, it's really one unit, but it's just a helpful way to think about, well, what does the law include? It includes these kinds of things. Then we go to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, where it's kind of celebrated in Psalm, and then we come to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now, all of these covenants, Ben, as you know, generate a lot of ink. Yes. And a lot of controversy, a lot of conversation. Hmm. Uh, but regardless of all of that, uh, let's stay focused on how they do function at maybe a very basic level hmm. to help us better understand the story of the Bible. And then along the way, we can delve into little details here and there. Yeah, I think this will be really helpful because I think, uh, you know, myself included, I'm a seminary student. And, right. and even the idea of uh, trying to process all of the covenants, what's going on, the, mm -hmm. you know, they can be, uh, because there's so much written on them, they, they yeah. can be really intimidating. It yes. can be a hard uh, hard topic to try to wrap your mind around. I think you know, many people uh, are you know, prone to just neglect the Old Testament because mm -hmm. it's so hard, right. because it's confusing, because you know, it takes a lot of uh, concentration to, mm -hmm. to think through 
how all of this is relating to each other and right. how they're interacting. And, and so I, I think this is a really helpful thing for us to think through, uh, you know, even for, for believers to, to wrestle through what's going on in the Old Testament. Yeah. I think this is a really helpful grid. Yeah. I think that's a good term, uh, grid, a uh, uh, progression. Those are helpful ways for us to think through what's going on in the Old Testament uh, through covenant. Yeah, if you think about it, uh, you're right. And we so we want to we we don't want to dismiss because as you, you know, so nicely um, stated for us that um, th- they're important, there's a lot of detail, uh could be intimidating, and uh, we we don't want to get trapped in that in the moment. What we want to see is how these covenants move the story. Hmm. And and um, you've been uh, along the way. Keep you raise the question. Okay, why why did God bring Israel into existence, and what is God doing with Israel? Well, I think in the covenants we begin to see. Oh, mm. okay, this is what God is doing, mm. and this is why He's doing it. Mm. But not only that, but as we we try to answer that question or look at this biblical material from that perspective, we begin to see. Well, what is God doing with the nations, mm. and then ultimately, what is God doing with us? So. Um, hopefully that'll be the the, uh, the focus that we want to uh, work on. So, with that in mind, let me just let me just give us a couple of key um, thoughts. First of all, what is a covenant? And at the very basic level, a covenant is um, a regulated relationship. Hmm. It's um, it's an agreement, a pact, um, something that binds two different parties together, hmm. and. Uh, and as we think about it in the biblical material, we see that it's so intrinsic to how God is working with Israel. Hmm. You know, he's in covenant with his people Israel that he's brought into existence. And, uh, you know, we're thinking primarily in terms of God is sovereign and Israel is the vassal. Hmm. Okay. Uh, now, there are other covenants that do exist in the ancient Near Eastern world, as well as in the biblical material, you know, covenants between Kings, you know, um, parties that are equal. We see covenants between nations and clans, and we even see the marriage relationship as a covenant ceremony. So, how about this? Did you and your bride, Leah, emphasize the covenant of marriage? You did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was really. It was really. Uh, you know, it's a. It's a rich picture, isn't it? It's a deep picture, and especially you know, as Christians, we we have the opportunity to enter into a. Christ-centered covenant mm-hmm. uh, with each other, and that—that that was something that was really special in our wedding ceremony. Oh, I'm glad to hear. Yeah. Uh, when I saw that played out in um, in uh, marriage ceremonies, I had the opportunity to witness or be part of. I just thought it was so sweet because mm-hmm. it really does um, bind husband and wife heart to heart, mm-hmm. and it really does emphasize the permanence mm-hmm. of that union that you're entering into. And um, I think it does nicely outline responsibilities that exist, you know, as each of you assume your role as husband and wife. Hmm. So, uh, so anyway, so you see a very practical application to covenant hmm. right off the bat. Hmm. All right. So covenant making in the ancient Near Eastern world is often described as cutting a covenant. And we'll see that played out uh, when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant uh, a little bit. But what I want to emphasize is that the Bible and that uh, God in his sovereign will and good pleasure as he's bringing and making himself known to his creation, he's engaging a very common um, ancient Near Eastern literary form and uh, sanctifying it, if you want to say it that way, and uh, using it for his purposes within the context of his people at that moment in time. And so we want to be sensitive to sort of the uh, all the ancient Near Eastern sort of um, uh, unique things about it. So two types of covenants, we typically think about them as Conditional, unconditional, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, the what we typically think of the conditional covenant is referred to as a suzerainty treaty. You have a sovereign uh, who is the suzerain. You have um, a vassal or uh, the servant who is uh, in this covenant relationship. Actually, the Book of Deuteronomy models this um, this pattern quite nicely. There's uh, probably about eight, seven or eight parts to it, and um, uh, the parts that we're particularly interested in would be the preamble and the historical prologue and then the stipulations. You know, So you have a preamble where there's an introduction of the parties 
and then the historical prologue where there is a review of the relationship between the parties, and then you have the stipulations. This is what you have to do uh, now that you are in um, in this pact or in this relationship with this this new sovereign individual. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a suzerainty treaty. We call it conditional because it's usually conditioned upon obedience. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as we played this out in uh, our um, our class, we you know tried to make the analogy to you know, a mortgage or to a car loan payment, you know, you know, we're so used to these kinds of things. And that's, that's very analogous to what we're talking about uh, here, but, you know, obviously at at a different level. Mm -hmm. Then the other one, the unconditional covenant that we're typically used to referring to as is known as the royal grant. And there, uh, in that royal grant, the sovereign is assuming responsibility for all of the particulars of the covenant. Hmm. Whereas in the suzerainty, the servant is assuming responsibility to obey the sovereign. Hmm. So the difference between the two covenants is where is the obligation placed? Who's going to take responsibility? Is it going to be the suzerain, the sovereign, or will it be the vassal, the servant? Hmm. And so we want to keep those things in mind. Hmm. So right off the bat, uh, just in case we kind of get uh, weighted down maybe in the weeds, what I'm trying to communicate, or what I want us to see, is something very simply. God is using an ancient Near Eastern literary form to communicate his progressing revelation to the nation of Israel. And he's using something that's very intrinsic to the ancient Near East, as well as something that's very intrinsic to Israel's faith. And it deals with relationship. How does God relate to his people Israel? How does Israel relate to their God? So right off the bat, we're beginning at this moment to see how do we relate to the sovereign God who brought everything into existence. Hmm. And we see that one of the means that God is going to use is this covenant idea. Hmm. So um, now the other thing that I want to just hit on briefly is that when covenants are made, there's usually a little bit of a, um, I'll call it um, maybe a covenant ethic that motivates Hmm. obedience so how do you how do you get somebody to comply with the terms? Well, you know, if you uh, want to um, get uh, compliance in a mortgage or a in a car loan, you want to lower the interest rate. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to have a really good interest rate so you're not you, you as the uh, the servant don't feel like you're spending more money than you need to. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, well that's great. I can pay that. Um, so how do you appeal obedience? in these covenant relationships. Well, in the ancient Near East, the Hittites were very well known for their grace ethic. Mm-hmm. And everything was motivated on past relationship, goodwill between the parties that were involved. And kind of this like, this, hey, we did this for you. You did this for us. Great relationship exists mm-hmm. between us and our ancestors. And so we appeal to you on the basis of that to obey and to conform oneself to the uh, stipulations of the covenant. Hmm. Then, on, in contrast to that, the Assyrians, who are kind hmm. of like the mafia of <laughs> the ancient Near East, hmm. you know, they're like, they're going to operate with a power ethic. Hmm. And everything is fear, intimidation, um, you, know, a, you know, just a strong, heavy hand. If you don't obey, we will break you. We will impale you. We'll gouge out your eyes. You know, a lot I mean, of barbaric violence. Exactly. Yeah. Ruthless. Um, it's ruthless. It's, and that's not how our God appeals to us. Mm. You know, I've often thought about just like motivation. How does God motivate us mm. to obey? And I have to say that it's He just lavishes us mm. time and time again with His grace mm. and His mercy. That's good. You know, and he motivates us to love him by lavishing us with grace and mercy. Now, is he righteous? Will he judge righteously? Yes, but he does it out of this context of grace and mercy, Hmm. the judgment that um, at times or the discipline that we experience ultimately comes. Hmm. So that kind of sets us up Hmm. for... Um, us now, so that's sort of like our ancient Near Eastern sort of ethos. Hmm. You know, we're, we're like we're we're thinking East here. We're not thinking West. Hmm. You know, and it's, it's a foreign world. It uh, is. It's, it's a hard world, I think, for us to uh, 
to go back into time and, and to think like uh, the original hearers of Scripture would have thought. Right. It's a foreign concept to us. Um, we have, you know, we have pieces of this covenant language in our culture today. We don't call them covenants right. necessarily. We, you know, we enter into contracts or, uh, you know, sign different things. Um, but I think this is really helpful for us to understand Scripture. Um, is to to figure out what what was the original audience thinking like? Right. How, what was their culture like? I think really helpful to to, to give us those two different covenants and. Uh, kind of what what marked each right. one. I think it's really helpful for us to engage in the story right. uh, and to appreciate it, to be able to understand what it's actually saying. I think we can misapply or right. pull out all kinds of weird things um, from these covenants if we're not tuned in to, to, to what, what's actually going on right. in the culture at that time. Right. So right off, what we're doing is we're, number one, defining the character of God. Mm-hmm. So the covenants are helping us. So in the drama of Scripture... In the story, you know what are we what are we learning first and foremost? Well, the covenant approach helps us to really understand the nature of our God. Who is He? Okay. Secondly, the covenants help us to understand well what is God doing? Hmm. You know. Well, the first thing that we see Him doing, you know, apart from creation, we see then the covenant that God makes with Noah. Okay, and uh, you know we we spent a good bit of time um, talking about Noah and the flood and so forth. But we see God acting as a righteous judge. Mm. Uh, we see him being patient for you know decades. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, you know w- w- we often think of Noah as a preacher of righteousness, but he preached for a hundred years. Yeah. You know, calling people to repentance, and we then ultimately see God. Um, acting righteously, but sparing mercifully Noah and his family, mm-hmm. and um, and then starting a new creation um, from that point on. We see, you know, a key word there in Genesis eight one of God remembering, mm-hmm. you know, and that that that's covenant language right there. God, you know, um, he was he's the sovereign of his creation. He's the sovereign. Um, in relationship with Noah, and he's remembering Noah, mm. you know, he's, you know, so he's going to rescue him from those rising floodwaters, bring him out of the ark, start the creation, um, you know, begin it again from him, if you want to mm. say it that way, and uh, populate the earth. And of course, you know, Noah wasn't perfect, was he? Mm. he you know, he, um, when we look at him in Genesis chapter 9, we see him um, as... Um, you know, failing miserably hmm. there at the end. But we see God continuing to work with his creation till we come to the Tower of Babel, and we see catastrophe and disaster, and we see God addressing um, what you so nicely talked about uh, last podcast about the nature of sin. What's really the nature of sin? That, that At the heart, what do we want? We want to be autonomous from God. Hmm. You know, we want to be our own. Hmm. Uh, we want to be... We want to be God-like, hmm. and we don't want to be uh, a servant to hmm. uh, the Lord God. And so you see that um, uh, when we come out of Genesis, we're making this this transition. When we come out of the Genesis 9, 10, uh, 11 context, we're seeing God now initiating a relationship with Abraham and uh, calling Abraham hmm. to leave his country. Hmm. And calling God or calling Abraham to, um, you know, move his people, his family uh, from the earth, Chaldeas, to the land that he was going to show them. Mm. And we see God making promises mm. of land, seed, and blessing mm. to Abraham. So, so basically we think about it. Okay, so we come out of creation. We experience the judgment of the flood. We see the judgment of uh, the Tower of Babel. And now we see God zeroing in on and singling out Abraham and God choosing to work through Abraham and promising to give Abraham land. You know, this this offspring that he'll bring from Abraham will enjoy land. Uh, this, you know, in Abraham's family, there'll be offspring, there'll be, ble- uh, there'll be seed, and then there'll be blessing that that seed will bring to not only... Um, 
his immediate family, but beyond. Hmm. So land, seed, and blessing come yeah. in. What a beautiful picture for God to uh, to bless Abraham and then to call him to be a blessing and, mm-hmm. and foretelling that, you know, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed through this one man. But what right. a what a gracious, you know, redemptive act of God here to to you know through His sovereign will promise that one day all the nations of the earth will experience blessing. Right through this ultimate seed of Abraham. Yeah. But I mean, just you see uh, what God is doing in the middle of the darkness of sin. Right. And it's so beautiful. Right. It stands out in contrast to. Uh, what all the other humans are saying and doing, right. God is speaking and he's using these covenants to, to show us who he is and to show us just what he's really doing. And it's right. beautiful. Yes, it is. It is very beautiful. And uh, I think um, the, 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 you know, the beauty, I, I love uh, um, how you're attentive to that because there's something beautiful about the story, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the plot line is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. What God is doing there's something beautiful about the artistry of the story itself, hmm. you know, how God knits it all together. Hmm. And I think that beauty continually underscores and emphasizes the authority of what we're reading, hmm. you know, because we, we see that, you know, apart from God, a story like this or a book of this kind, the Bible as we know it, could not have been written. Hmm. I mean, how, how could you have orchestrated this hmm. uh, apart from the divine intentions? So... Now, the other thing that is, I think, worth accentuating is that there is this missional aspect mm-hmm. to the story. And you see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Mm-hmm. Now, our authors uh, in the drama scripture, um, Goheen and Bartholomew, make a big point of this. And this is what I love about you know this bringing out as early as possible kind of this missional um, idea, this missional theme. We are on mission with God. And here, basically, when God is singling out Abraham, he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I've got a mission for you, Hmm. or I'm going to use you to accomplish my mission, Hmm. which is bringing blessing to the creation. Hmm. And then as we see that in the progress of the revelation played out more and more, and we bring that that idea or that theme in the New Testament, we move from this come and see, so you know, come to Israel, see what God is doing to now go and tell. Hmm. You know, the church is, uh, as it's on mission with God, moving into the next phases of the story, hmm. on mission with God to go and tell. Hmm. So we want to emphasize that hmm. like early as possible. That's a great point, yeah. You know, because um, sometimes our missionary kind of, uh, or our great commission kind of man mandate or understanding sometimes gets lost um, and seems somewhat disconnected from the Old Testament, mm. but it really isn't. Yeah, through the terms of story, you know, here Abram's being called out to be an actor in the story. Mm-hmm. He gets to gets to play in the story. Yes. And, uh, you know, we as the church will have a, a whole section of the whole act on how we get to live in the story. Right. I think uh, we, we get to be actors. We get right. to participate in this great play that God is uh, you know, unfolding throughout history, yeah. and it's it's really incredible. It is, uh, and and yeah, I think it's that's such a great point that he's commanded to be a blessing to to all the people around him. And what's that going to look like, and how's he going to do at it? And you know, we have these we have these hopeful moments where you know, is this the serpent crusher? Yes, I think uh, with Noah. Is, yes, yes. It, like, what's going to happen at the flood? Is is he going to be the one to finally clear out evil? And and we see clearly, no. He fails. Mm-hmm. Okay, Abram. Like, mm-hmm. what? Ooh, is this, this going to be the serpent crusher? Right. Like, ooh, he, it's promised through this. What, what's going to happen with him? Right. And and I think uh, you know, we, as we trace the covenants, we have these glimpses of hope. Like, ooh, is this finally when yeah. when evil will be cleared out? Yeah. Is this, is this when the serpent will be crushed? Mm-hmm. And so we, we're always constantly you know brought back to the original promise right. of the garden. And right. w- how's that going to be fulfilled? Roy's you know, wondering. Mm-hmm. What's God doing? And I think that's a cool. Yeah. Well, uh, when we ended our our, our second uh, podcast, uh, you were talking about like a lot of unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Well, now we begin to see how the covenants kind of help us see how some of those questions that are unanswered mm-hmm. are going to be answered. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, like you said, we, we think it's going to be this way, but it turns out not. Mm. And uh, so the, the story is really being driven by and in the progress of the revelation being more informed by mm. uh, each of these revelations that God is making with regard to the covenant. Mm. Well, just a couple of things I'll hit with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, because there's so much here, as, as we all know. But uh, a couple of things. Number one, we see Abraham believing God in Genesis 15, mm. 6. So probably, if you were to think about it in terms of covenant, probably Genesis 12 is more like a promise in mm. anticipating a covenant. And then you see um, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, mm. you know, where the covenant is actually, the promise is actually being formalized. So what we see is Abraham responding in belief to God in Genesis 15, 6. Uh, later in the chapter, we see God um, formalizing the covenant, like chapter 15, verses 8 to 21. You know, we see God literally cutting a covenant. Mm. And remember, we talked about, well, what does a covenant mean, or how is a covenant made? Well, covenants are cut. Well, Genesis 15, verses 8 to 21, really give us a great illustration of how a covenant is cut particularly in a royal grant kind of a covenant. You know, animals were halved, and uh, you see that detailed for us. The royal grant covenant is the one where uh, the, you know, the, the sovereign one yes. takes on the responsibility. Correct? Right. Okay. That's right. Just to, yeah, no, that's good. Just to make yeah. sure we're on the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're all remembering you. correctly. Yeah, that's the, right. The servant doesn't have the obligation. Exactly. The master does. So here God's, you know, cutting a covenant as the the one entering the obligation, right? And how does how does that portray? He's formal, yeah. He's formalizing his commitment to fulfill the terms of the covenant or to um, bring about all the particulars. And in the ancient Near East, the way they would do that would be having of animals, and the one who is assuming the obligation is going to walk down between the middle of those halved animals and basically pronounce like a self curse on themselves. Like if, in other words, if I don't, um, if the terms of this covenant are not fulfilled, let me be, you know, cut in half, Hmm. you know. And so in a sense, God is saying, I am making an unfailing commitment Hmm. to you, Abram, and to your descendants to give you this land, to bring seed and posterity from you and to make you a blessing. So God is making the promise and committing himself to fulfill the promise. Mm. And it's really beautiful in the account there in Genesis 15. Abraham is really like in a deep sleep. So he's like mm. this passive mm. observer. There's no way you can say that this is up to Abraham. Mm. God is fully committing himself mm. to this. So even though we don't see this kind of a ceremony played out in the Davidic covenant or in the Mosaic covenant or in the Noahic covenant, it's really like implicit there. Mm. There's this this obligation assumed by the sovereign. And in the biblical story, the sovereign is the Lord God. Mm. The servants are Noah and his, you know, who are the benefactors? Noah and his descendants, Abraham and his descendants, and ultimately beyond, mm. David and his descendants, Israel and its people that... Uh, come from and are ultimately the benefactors of the new covenant. Hmm. I think it's in, uh, is it somewhere in Hebrews uh, where, where you, you have a history, a retelling of God's dealings. And uh, it says, you know, God uh, with, with no other authority to be yes. swore by, he swore by his own word yes. because it's impossible for him to lie. Right, right. And you have this beautiful picture of like, what higher authority would you need to, you know, enter into a contract and make sure it happened than the sovereign good king of the universe saying, I will do this. Right. And then for him to swear by his own word. Right. We have Bobby visiting us again. (laughs) It's such a beautiful picture, though, of uh, God swearing by his own word. Right. And and it's good as done. Right. Uh, Nothing will stop it. Yeah, if you think about it, Ben... God is wooing us, bringing us into the drama that he is the plot line, but at the same time entering, hmm. you know, our storyline by, you know, uh, it, it, through these means, you know, and ultimately through the incarnation where the Lord Jesus comes as the sacrifice uh, that's, uh, you know, going to secure the covenant. But you see him acting 
kind of in the ancient Near Eastern, you know, norms and cultural ways of his creation, you know, he's he's not the disenchanted or the uninvolved sovereign. He is he's acting in the story to make the story happen in a sure and a certain way. I think I, I just think that's amazing. You know and what? and he's doing so with the ethic of grace. Yes. Uh, I mean, coming to Abram and promising good things. Right. He's not saying, you know, I'm going to poke your eyes out. I'm right. going to cut you in half. Like, he's the one right. overly gracious. I mean, so kind in promising these incredible blessings to someone ill-deserving of them. Right. And incapable of, of fulfilling what's required to make that happen. God takes that on himself. And, and it's just such a beautiful, a beautiful concept of this idea of covenant and what God is entering into with man. It's, it's so beautiful. And it's, it's a drama. Like it's, it oh, leaves yeah. us wondering like, oh, what's good? What's going to happen? What's going to happen next? Yes. Yeah. How yeah. is this working? Yeah. Now I think, okay. So a couple of things maybe to just uh, a couple little details to keep in mind as we make our way through. First of all, um, Gary Schnicker in his book, The Torah Story, um, our authors in the drama of scripture and, and other writers have taken note of this. Um, you know, the, the idea that Genesis 12, this covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel is, or excuse me, with, with Abram at this point in time is, you know, is tied into um, the other parts of the story. So it really, so this covenant, um, you know, from here we begin to see in the next chapters through Genesis, we begin to see how God brings about the offspring, hmm. you know, and then uh, we see how God develops the relationship in Leviticus and uh, Numbers, hmm. and then we see how God moves the nation forward to the land in the book of Deuteronomy. And so, like, if you just think about the, you know, the, the three key elements, land, seed, and blessing from the Abrahamic covenant, and you just read the rest of the story with awareness of that you begin to see oh okay here's what god is doing you know he's mm -hmm. he's he's focusing in on the offspring he's you know he's bringing forth all these children from abraham um he's you know joseph is going to go down to egypt and the nation is just going to blossom mm -hmm. and then you see god delivering and then you see god you know defining the relationship uh through civil ceremonial kind of laws and regulations mm -hmm in um, Leviticus and Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, you see God moving the nation towards, uh, towards the land. So, you know, it, it, it really does begin to, like, hang together so nicely. Now, we come to the next covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant. Now, that's a little different than the Abrahamic, Noahic, Davidic, and New. This one is more of a suzerainty treaty. And the obligation is now placed upon the servant to obey the terms of the covenant. I think, it, it just as I've kind of played this out over the years, I think of the Mosaic covenant as, you know, ultimately replaced by, uh, or in the progress of God's revelation, um, you know, developed by the new covenant. I think the I think <clears throat> both new covenant. And um, Abraham, a Mosaic covenant kind of have to deal in, in theological terms more with sanctification, hmm. and uh, and I, that might be an oversimplification. But I'm just trying to think of some broad categories that might help us get a handle on what's going on here. Uh, the Mosaic covenant or the Ten Commandments, if we want to narrow it down, were really intended for Israel to know how to live as the people that God had redeemed. Hmm. All right, so God redeemed us, redeemed the nation uh, in the Exodus. And now God is saying, okay, you are my people. This is how you are to live. You are a holy nation, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. And this is how priests live. And uh, here are my, here's my will, here are my ways, and I want you to submit to that. And just to tie it even back to like the Abrahamic covenant of, uh, you know, drawing a man in onto mission. Right. This is what it looks like to be in right. my story. Right. Uh, this is what it looks like to be my people to the children of Israel. Right. Like, right. you know, <clears throat> the children of Israel are going to reflect God's character to the nations. Right. 
like people will make conclusions on on who the living king of the universe is right, right, based off right. this little nation of Israel. So he's he's giving them these uh, you know character qualities that really right. he's calling them to embrace these commands he's calling them to live out uh, you know these ways of living together as people uh, that would reflect who God is yeah. and to to live on mission to to participate in the story right uh, yeah I think that's a helpful way of you know maybe looking through yeah. uh, some of these no spot on commands. I think that's a great observation and then um, if you think about it it even takes us back further to creation. Because we're created in the image and likeness of God, well, what is the best way for us to image God? Mm. You know, by being this, by fully living out this royal priesthood role and responsibility that we mm. have. And so, uh, you see again, just the the connections and the tidiness of the story, mm. and it's not so um, so crazy after all. <laughs> so, yeah, it's starting to make sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, just to key off of this um, ethic of grace. When we just before God gives Israel the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty, he tells the nation of Israel, he tells Moses, and he tells this this group of people, this offspring that's been brought into existence. He says to Moses, um, he goes, when you gather the people together, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse four of Exodus nineteen. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know, there's really that, that whole idea of you, you have seen what I did. You know, you were in bondage hmm. and then you see how I bore you on eagles' wings hmm. highlights Israel's redemption. Hmm. You, you were in bondage and what did I do? I bore you on eagles' wings. Hmm. Now, the immediate goal is I'm bringing you to myself and what I'm going to tell you what I want you to do or how I want you to be, <laughs> you know, if you think about it that way. So the Ten Commandments then, um, you know, we, we typically think of the Ten Commandments as like, oh, that's all law. There is no grace. Mm. We think of it as a burden. We think of it as a death nail. But really the text does kind of contextualize what God is saying, it, it, you know, as my redeemed people created in my image and likeness for my purpose that will be to carry my word, my blessing across the, uh, across the world. Um, this is what I want you to, how I want you to be. Yeah. They're already God's people, right? He's already rescued That's right. them. That's right. This, these aren't requirements for them to be God's people. They're That's right. characteristics of what God's people should be. Yes. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it, it goes back to you know, something we talked about last time with the, the joy of dependence mm-hmm. and the freedom to love mm-hmm. and how that that's really what it means to be fully human right to be dependent on god god's inviting israel to be dependent on him right and to live in the freedom of the boundaries that right. he as the sovereign king the good king right all-knowing king uh has laid out for them you you live in these boundaries you, you live in this these limits right. there's great freedom Right. There's great joy. Right, right. And you really get this holistic picture of yes. what yes. life, you know, it's almost a little bit like Eden again, where right. w- when people are, you know, living as they should, uh, you get this beautiful picture of the, the shalom idea, yeah. The, yeah. the peace, all well-being right. uh, that, that comes with trusting God yeah. and loving him and loving each other. Yeah. Like we were made Yeah, to- so our worth, our identity, you know, it, and just as you've, just as you've summarized it there, we will thrive when we when we submit ourselves to really the Creator's plan. Mm. And the Creator's plan is, I created you in my image and likeness, um, and this is how you can really thrive. And you can um, indeed uh, blossom, shalom, have that uh, state of well-being. And, but if you're going to rebel against that, like we saw that rebellion in the garden, we saw that rebellion um, in in the in the Tower of Babel, you know what does that lead to? It leads to disaster. But if we truly see that we are created for relationship with the Lord God, and created to carry His mission forward, participate in that mission with Him, that's where we begin to thrive. That then I think is just a great way of giving some perspective to the commands in in Exodus nineteen, Exodus twenty verses one through seventeen. 
And we won't uh, spend any time uh, moving through those. But then we come to the next block of his block of scripture, mm. which is what we in the Hebrew Old Testament we would call the former prophets, mm. and uh, we think of those as uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Mm. You know, which really carry the storyline, um, you know, significantly. Mm. You know that, and that's a big block of material: Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Um, you know, a number of chapters, uh, very narrative-like very story-like. Well, how do we read those stories? How do we understand those stories? Well, we need to, we need to read them through the lens of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. You know? So I like to call that you know, sort of this block of history being covenant history. In other words, the, the, sto- the, the, the covenant, Mosaic and Abrahamic, is really the grid that helps us best understand what's going on in all of these individual episodes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what happens uh, with Joshua, for example, as he's coming into the land and uh, Joshua's being told that, um, that you know, um, just follow my word, be submitted to me, don't worry about the enemy. Um, you know, one man's going to chase a thousand. You know, so that, that takes you back to the curses in Leviticus mm. and the blessings. So as you are Israel, as you are in obedience to me, you're going to see that uh, I'll go before you as a divine warrior, mm. that um, uh, I've identified, the Lord has identified himself in Exodus 15. I'm the divine warrior. Mm. I led you out of Egypt. I'm going to lead you into the land. Mm. And, um, uh, and just follow me. Just be obedient to me. And you'll find, um, even though you might be small in number, you're going to... Be in charge, and you're, you know, they're gonna. People are gonna flee from you, and you'll defeat them. But if you're disobedient, then you're going to be chased. Hmm. You, you see, so you know, you look at the accounts that happened in I and so forth, and um, you know, with Jericho, and you see, well, like, what happened there? Well, they're being chased. Why? Because they refused to trust the Lord in the conquest of the city. There, so God is giving them the land. Uh, and, you know, what's kind of interesting, when you come to the end of Joshua, uh, they had some of the land, but they didn't have all of the land. Hmm. It was kind of like an already, not yet, hmm. you know. And then you go into the histories of Samuel and Kings, and and you just, you know, I think we're enriched, we're benefited, we're helped as we read those blocks, those large blocks of material through the lens of these covenants that God has made with the nation of Israel. It, it almost echoes, you know, back to Genesis 1 through 3, where yes. God gives these instructions and you see, okay, humans have the opportunity to uh, obey him mm-hmm. or defy him. Right. To trust God as the author uh, and, and, you know, the source for right and wrong, the authority for right and wrong, or to take upon themselves that right and to exercise this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Right. I think you know, time after time, story after story, throughout those books, you, you get case after case where people choose to become their own authority on right, right and wrong. People choose to try to be like God. Even God's own people do right. that, and they, they fail at obeying God. Right. They fail to take him at his word. Right. They fail to believe he's good. Right. They fail to believe that he's working all of these things right. out uh, for their benefit, right. and so they they try to be autonomous. Right. They and it's so sad. I think um, you know a lot of these stories are, are just so sad. Mm-hmm. Thinking, oh, like Israel, just just follow God, right. just obey right. Him, just right. trust Him. Right. Like, it, it'll all work out well for you. Right. Right. And time and time again, we see human nature on display, even in God's people, uh, where they fail to take God at His covenant word. Mm-hmm. Here you have this gracious covenant laid out. You know, here, follow me, trust right. me, right. Um, obey me, and and you, you see time after time rebellion, right. time after time uh, a desire to do their own thing, right. and yet God is undeterred. Right. He's still advancing the story at His pace right. for His ends, right. uh, and and so you know w- what happens next. Yeah, well, you know it's it's interesting um, as you just summarize that, um, you know. One of the things I, I mentioned earlier is that the covenants help us understand who God is mm-hmm. and then our relationship to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so now at this juncture in the story, so we're like we're kind of like mentally Joshua, Judges, 
Samuel, and in Samuel we're going to see another significant development, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Second Samuel with David. Mm-hmm. But how is God defining himself mm-hmm. in the story up to this point? Really, you could think of it in two ways, and we celebrate this so often, that is, creator, redeemer. Mm-hmm. You know, you see him, he is the creator. And, you know, that's, that's emphasized, you know, he's the creator in Genesis 1 and 2. He's the creator post-flood. He's the creator post-Babel. He's the redeemer, hmm. you know. And so we see these two ideas, these two markers, these two attributes, these hmm. two works of God as being really the basis that constantly appeal to us. Like you were saying, you know, just believe God. Well, why should I believe you? Well, you're the creator, you're the redeemer, you know. Mm-hmm. Why should I submit to your word? Well, look at I'm the creator. I'm the one that bore I'm the one that rescued you and I brought you out. So now in the story, if you think about okay, so the the Lord is going to progressively make another revelation in the story that moves us even further um, in the whole overall drama. Because so if you think about it, where are we? All right, people who have been redeemed out of Egypt a people who have grown into a, a nation, a people who have um, pushed their way by God's sovereign leadership as the divine warrior led them into a land, a people who are kind of messed up. There's like this tension going on. Mm. And I like how you um, uh, display it because I think covenant history really does realistically reflect the tension that existed within the nation of Israel. Am I going to believe God or am I not going to believe? And so covenant history is just unpacking for us time and time again that real tension that's going on. But now we come to a point where the 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 nation of the Israelites are going to take on a national identity and God is going to make provision for a king for the nation of Israel. And that's where the Davidic covenant comes in in 2 Samuel 7. Now, what is unique about this, and this again echoes back, the whole idea of king and kingdom and kingship is not an accommodation. Hmm. Because in Genesis 17, when God is working with Abraham, he says, I'm going to bring forth kings from you. Hmm. And then in Genesis 49, he says, I'm going to use the tribe of Judah to be the line of kings that would be um, uh, risen up and brought forward in the nation of Israel. And now we come to that first king, David. So isn't it interesting how God, you know, in the story, singling out different people that he will use that will then be the conduit that he'll work through to advance another piece of the story. I think we're prone to think that you know, Israel wanting a king was a bad thing because, you know, the original episode earlier in 1 Samuel when uh, they want to be like the nations, uh, they want to have a king. So they, you know, they tell Samuel, we want a king. And so Samuel goes to God and they they have Saul as their king. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we see really it's it's an issue of bad timing. Right. Almost back with the tree of the knowledge of evil. Right. Uh, You know, bad timing. Um, And and really the, the motivation for why they wanted a king was to be like the nations right. rather than to stand out from the nations right. and to mirror God's character. They wanted to be like them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, God gives them what he wants, but it's, you know, it's, I think you're helpful in pointing out it's not an accommodation purely, that it was always the goal right. that, that they would be led by a king. Right. And so when we get, you know, the covenant with David, you, you start to see that, that, that this isn't just an accommodation. This is really God's design all right. along and it's building up. Uh, through this because you know god's people will need a king right they need someone to rule justly they need someone to reign they need right. someone to lead them into military battle they need someone to protect them right. and to, to to be a king right and so that, that's a, a really helpful point that you make and uh one that i don't think i had really thought a whole lot about until uh mm. you were teaching through this. yeah really well you know I, I, and of course um there's a lot of good um, conversation about this but i i just see this as and maybe it's just kind of nuancing with um, others who might take a point of view that might be a little bit different. But I, I, I see it as a, um, you know, this was God's plan. Um, and, uh, you know, he wanted the right king in the right time. Mm. And um, so when he 
um, opens the door for monarchy in his overall theocracy, he's not, you know, it's not like, oh, well, you know, I never wanted it this way. But the right monarch in a theocracy will ultimately accomplish God's ultimate ends and bring about worship, that mm. the worship that he desires and wants. So, you know, what do we see promised in, um, in the Davidic covenant? Well, we see that there would be a king, David, you know, would have, there would be a royal line that would never be slain in total. So there'd be a, a house of rulers, there'd be a throne, you know, not a literal throne, but more of a rule. We, we, we typically think of, um, when we think about the Davidic covenant, we think of king, uh, so we have a royal person. We think about um, a reign, the right to rule, and then we think about a realm, you know, a place in which that um, that um, that rule is exercised, and that's really the essence of the Davidic covenant. Mm. You know, uh, a royal, a reign, and a realm. You know, if you think about it, those three things, that's really what God is promising to the nation uh, through David, and uh, it would be forever. Uh, Psalm eighty-nine really is a celebration of Second <clears throat> Samuel seven. But how does the Davidic covenant connect to the rest of the story? You see, the promise of a king, a kingdom, and a reign are grants guaranteed by the Lord. Kings and a monarchy were anticipated, as we've already mentioned, in the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant. Monarchy was anticipated in theocracy. And the individual kings will enjoy reign if he conforms to the Mosaic covenant. Hmm. So we judge these individual kings based upon their heart disposition to submit to God and to the Mosaic Covenant. And the kingdom will be in the land promised in the Abrahamic Covenant. Hmm. You say, so you see how all of this ties in and then propels us forward. Now, from this point on in the story, we move from David into the monarchy, so the United Kingdom, David and Solomon. Then we go to the divided monarchy, the northern and the southern kingdom. There's really no new revelation. There's really no new advancement of the story. But what you see in the story is a lot of the covenant dynamics being played out. Um, you see, you know, the main actors in the story are obviously the Lord, the nation of Israel, the nations, and then the three covenant administrators of prophet, priest, and king acting. So the story is really going to be carried along by those maybe eight sort of characters or actors, the Lord, the nation of Israel, the nations, prophet, priest, and king. What do I have, seven or eight? I can't, I can't really count. I'm not, a good, uh, I'm not a good counter there, so I apologize if I've, I've confused it a little bit. But those are the main actors in the story. And so we, when we read the story, we're wanting to think about how are they interacting with each other? How are they showing compliance or conformity to the Mosaic Covenant? How is Israel really trusting the promises that were made to Abraham, to Noah, uh, to uh, David? And then we come to the New Covenant. And that's detailed for us in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah... Um, you know, when the nation is now in exile. So, you know, we had... And they're in exile because they disobeyed. That's right. So that's, I think you, know, you have more uh, at every step of the, of the path. Right. Um, you just have this increasing, uh, you know, need. Uh, you know, the people aren't following God like they should. They're not uh, loving each other like they should. They're not... Uh, the kings certainly aren't following God. You have this grand, there's this climax with David where you're like, is he going to be the one? Is he the seed to crush the serpent? Like, here we have our king. Right. And then he sins. Okay, Solomon, the wisest man ever. Mm -hmm. Surely he'll be that. No. You have these repeated moments where we're, we're still, like, waiting. Like, right. is this, this going to be it? Like, and, and, and Israel fails. And they, they come into just utter disrepair, and they're sent into exile. Right. And and you get this low. It's just right. just low period of like hopelessness, but there's right. hope. Yeah. And again, Second Kings 17 gives us the theological reason why Israel is in exile. Hmm. And it's exactly what you said, that they are in exile. And Exodus, Second Kings 17 explains that the exile is because... 
they have broken the Mosaic Covenant. Mm. They have failed to be a faithful covenant partner mm. with God. And so what does God do? He faithfully and loyally exiles his people just as he promised he would do for mm. their disobedience. And But then, while in exile, he gives another word of revelation, which is the new covenant, mm. which really, like hammers the question marks uh, into an exclamation point. Mm. You know, all right, the new covenant, we're going to be in our land. We're going to be forgiven. We're going to have this knowledge of God. We're no longer going to be um, living in fear of exile or thinking that we can't live up to God's standards because what God is going to do is he's going to transform our hearts Mm. and he's going to forgive us and he's going to gather us and we're going to be in the land uh, together. Now, of course, that just generates a whole lot of conversation right there, doesn't it? <laughs> it's sort of in the theological spectrum, well, mm. you know, is, is there yet a future for the nation of Israel, or has the church replaced the nation of Israel? And um, so the book of Hebrews helps explain a lot of this as we move forward mm. from the exile and the post-exilic period into the New Testament. I think we all would agree that the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately the one who cut the new covenant in his death, in his burial and his resurrection. I think where we would tend to maybe find some shades of disagreement is, okay, well, um, how fully is that new covenant implemented? Is it fully implemented in this period of time in which we're living, the church age? Or is there something yet um, to be fulfilled in the future? And I kind of think there's something yet out there. I think that we are enjoying a lot of maybe the benefits of the new covenant, for sure, our relationship to Christ. But I think there's, uh, there's something yet. When I read Jeremiah 31, 32, 33, I think of, um, you know, well, the text does anticipate this new covenant being fully lived out in the land. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, of course, we could debate a little bit about well what's the land you know a lot of ink has been spilled in that yes effort. yes yeah. but but regardless of all that don't let mm. those things distract you mm. i think the story plot line is what we really want to focus on mm. but we want to be honest and acknowledge that this is a, a conversation point mm. doesn't like your correction no i don't yeah so anyway so when we when we wrap it all up then ben mm. um we, we come to the end and we see that biblical history is structured and narrated based on the covenants. The Mosaic Covenant is that suzerainty treaty type. Mm. The Noah, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants are more grant-like. And really it does underscore the Lord's commitment to his people. And uh, he's, you know, through, all, through it all, we see the Lord as the faithful covenant Lord, um, expressing his unfailing covenant love, his chesed, as we like to think about it, that loyalty, that unfailing love that he's expressing time and time again to the nation of Israel. Mm. And uh, we see God acting faithfully in light of that. And we, we have, I think, some answers to why why is God, what is God doing with the nation of Israel? He's bringing, it's all part of his redemptive plan. It's all part of what ultimately will eventuate in glory to himself it's all part of how the Messiah would come. Mm. It's all part of how the church would then come into existence. Mm. And um, we see it, um, um, you know, I think the covenants just help us mm. thinking through a big chunk of Israelite history mm. and set us up for, the, for what's yet before us in the next Acts. Yeah, there's a lot of material. You covered yes. uh, a few thousand pages of uh, the Bible there in, in an hour or so. Yeah, yes. great job. I think it's really helpful. Uh, I really love the 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 characters we should be looking for. Right, um, those are so helpful. I think uh, we can get so lost in so many different rabbit trails. Right, but you know, what is God doing? What is you know what is what is God's people supposed to be doing and the you know, prophet, priest, king. Yeah. Did I miss any? I think I missed four. Yeah, and the nations. The as nations. Well. The yeah. nations. Yeah. yeah. And and seeing the story through those main actors right. and developing their, you know, plot, their character development throughout the story can right. be so helpful. I think at the end of the Old Testament you you're you're crying, like you're just waiting 
for this full redemption. Right. There have been glimpses of it, but but it hasn't been total. Right. You haven't seen heart transformation right. yet, which is why there's just you know failure after failure after failure. There right. there isn't a perfect king yet. Right. Which is why you know there's division and why there's you know sin in high leadership levels of God's own people, mm-hmm. and and why there's you know atrocities done against each other. Why they're in exile. These you know painful. Uh, repercussions of the fall mm-hmm. are felt all throughout the old Testament. Right. And, and you get to the end of it and it's like, all right, well, what's going to happen? We, mm-hmm. we need, we need a, a really good, perfect savior. Uh, when's he going to show up? Yeah. And, and, and you're going to introduce us to him next week. Yes. In the, uh, the king, um, in, you know, uh, the king's, Kingdom story, waiting for an ending, and the coming of the king in Act 4. So yeah, so we're going to look a little bit at the intertestamental period, yeah. which is something we don't usually talk a whole lot about. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark right. and how Jesus himself uh, unveils his kingdom. Right. And what does it mean for him to be king? Right. So we're going to look at that. Yeah, so when we see the king coming, we're going to just see the connections to all these Old Testament covenants. And we're going to mm-hmm. just see that this is the, this is the pathway God has cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's faithfully provided mm. in that pathway. So don't forget all of this information. There's a lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Clem, for uh, just helping us uh, wrap our heads around what God's doing, who he is, and uh, hopefully uh, a lot of it'll stick, and we'll we'll pick up some of those themes next week when we look at the Gospel of Mark. Thanks so much for joining us for our third episode of this podcast. Uh, leave a review if you like what you're hearing, um, and make sure to tune in next week. Mm-hmm.